Well, that's awesome, amen? Why don't we uh, continue worshiping in a different route? Why don't you grab a pen, prep to yourself to begin to kind of take notes. Some people don't think of that as worship, but I want to encourage it as a way of worship also this morning, especially when it comes to this subject. I don't want you walking away from this series forgetting what we're talking about. We've been discussing in the series Travel Plans, a conversation that life is a journey. We are on our way to some final destinations, and we've discussed those various ones of the afterlife, of, the, of hell, and we talked about heaven. Last week we began, this week we'll finish our conversation conversation on heaven. And we're really asking this question, if, if you knew where you were going, would you change your travel plans? If, would you change the direction you were headed? Or in another way, would you look forward to it? Would you have such an anticipation about heaven that it would overwhelm your daily living to, and change the way that you lived? And, and really, that's our goal here is to kind of touch on this idea of heaven and this idea of our travel plans. And, you know, for me, it, um, it really came to a head years ago when my mother died. And um, we uh, kind of as a family were mourning and my aunt handed me a book and this um this book was, was pretty inspiring. I'll, I'll tell you about it. It's this book right here. It's called uh, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Maybe some of you have heard it. Maybe some of you have read it. Um, Randy Alcorn devotes his entire ministry to the thought and the conversation of heaven and eternity. And so he's, uh, he's interesting. I don't agree with everything he has to say in here, but I would say that he is on the right track and, and pointing in a very, very powerful direction for our imagination to ignite and get engaged in the conversation and the thought of heaven. You know, when we talk about heaven today, I want to give you guys a note. If you have young people in the room, you might want to ship them off to their proper location. We're going to talk about um, a lot of different things, especially we're going to talk about uh, what happens in marriage and um, sometimes not marriage, but we're going to discuss that particular topic in general when it comes, in particular, sorry, when it comes to heaven. Now, that being said, then, uh, I just, it started really coming to that head through this book. I went to a, um, I went to a party. It was a birthday party for somebody and we were in the backyard hanging out. I started talking with my friend John and we were discussing this conversation about heaven. I just started getting into this kind of what it would be and what the new earth was like. And we got all these wacky ideas out there. And he was just kind of like, yeah, this is, he was getting more and more excited. We talked about it. And it dawned on, I think both of us said, hey, wow, this is such a real place. We're going to have a great opportunity to be able to meet up. We're going to remember this conversation. Right then and there, me and my friend John, we made a decision. We're meeting up in eternity and we're going rock climbing together. And it sounds funny and strange because you're like rock climbing and eternity. I mean, won't we be busy doing other things like singing or floating on clouds, playing harps? No, no, no. What was crazy for both of us is I don't think there's probably a week that doesn't go by where we don't consider that date coming. There's something so solid, so real about the fact that it's going to occur because of what Jesus Christ has done for us that we are pumped. We call each other our rock climbing buddies. We've never rock climbed together at all, nor have we. I, I don't know if I'll ever do it while I'm here on this, on this earth. But the, um, the reality of that new heaven is that clear. And there is a very real sense that we need a polarizing transformation of our perspective on heaven if it's going to be that real. Because God longed for it and called it our hope. He called it what it should, what it should be for us, that guiding energy for a passionate Christ follower. And our church desires to change everyday people into that community of passionate Christ followers. We desire that to realize a passionate Christ follower has their eye on eternity, has their eye set. Ultimately, one on Jesus Christ has not just saved us from, but what he saved us to. 
And when we have that locked in, it begins to give us motivation to overcome pains and problems in our lives as we're aiming at his pat, what, he's ha- what he has for us to do, at the passion he has for us. It's going to be what we long for, and it's going to be something that we consider as we deal away with sin and as we press into what God is calling us to do. And so I really want to dive in further this morning about this idea of the new heaven and new earth. Last week, we talked about the fact that it's a that the first thing we note is that we are resurrected and that our bodies have been transformed to this unperishable, glorious, powerful state that we will exist in forever. We won't die. We won't run into the problem of disease. We won't have the issues of, of suffering and mourning that we have on this planet. War is gone. All those things gone. Then we talked about the fact that there's going to be a resurrected earth and a resurrected heaven in a sense. That God's presence, his abode has entered in and everything about heaven is birthing from the very presence of God. That God's very presence is so powerful and so immediate and so glorious. There is no fear. There is no um, hiding of ourselves and there is no sin and there is just his presence fully and completely. We went over all that. I'll leave that for last week. If you want to check that out on the podcast, you can do that. But I want to dive in further into focusing more on this eternal state. So if you will, grab a Bible, Revelation chapter 21, last book of the Bible, almost the last chapter. And why don't you open up there? We're going to pick up and we're going to continue examining this eternal state as it's described in this book. And kind of dive around and look at some other aspects as well. So beginning in Revelation chapter 21, um, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So there's this intimacy that's occurred. We're with God. We're present with him. We know him especially, and the earth has been renewed. So let's focus in on that one more time, just for a minute. The fact that the the first change we have to have is that the earth, the new earth, is a lot like this earth. The new earth is a lot like this earth. That's why I said I could set a rock climbing date. I believe that there will literally be places to go rock climbing in eternity. Because what we're looking at is not an ethereal floating space you know, world of spirit and form and platonic whatever. It's, it is a resurrected world. It is the resurrected earth and God's presence upon it. In fact, I believe that that, that new earth and new heavens is going to spread a lot further than that. But before we dive into that, I want to consider that this world or this coming world, this new world is going to be a lot like this one. There are going to be lakes. There's going to be mountains. We know there are going to be trees at least because the tree of life is there. We know there are going to be rivers flowing because there's a river of life there. We know that there is the idea of a city. So there's going to be centers of population. There's a very realistic concept that this is going to be much like now just with one thing missing. And that's sin. Now, as we dive in, we begin to look, we realize in other passages, like in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 7, we wind up seeing animals exist in this state, in this realm. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Um, It goes on to talk about how children will play by viper's dens, and all these kind of, these dangers of the natural world, what it's saying, it will be removed. 
Now, how the, uh, bear, how the bear gets to this place and how the, the lion gets to this place and how the predatory animals get to this place, there's a matter of debate. Is this going to be a transformed ecosystem because no animals will die? There's no more baby cubs and cute little sea lions and stuff like that. You know, that's a whole other conversation we can get into. If you want to talk about it after service, that'd be fun. But the bottom line here is there is animals there. How they act is different. But we're not, and how God puts that together is different. But we know there are animals there. Are they tame because humanity's tamed them? Or are they tame because God has just changed something in their nature and, and shifted them? And that's a question for conversation. But all you animal lovers out there, there are going to be animals there. Which is, which if you love dogs, you're happy. You know? If you love lions and you always said, I want a pet lion as a kid, you're happy because this seems to be the, the case. So the idea here is that there is this reality of, of animal life there. There's also seems to be the reality of stars and planets remaining. Now you're going to read in, in here in a little bit verses that seem to indicate the sun doesn't shine or the moon doesn't shine. It's speaking strictly about the city where it's not needed. But when you read that there's a new heavens the word is plural, and we need to realize that. It's not a new heaven, it's a new heavens. The Hebrews didn't think of heaven as a one solitary location. They had kind of a, a concept of three layers of heaven, or three levels. You're like, that sounds like Mormonism. Hold on, time out. I won't calm down for a second. I, expressed in this manner. The Hebrews understood that the air that you and I fly through in our airplanes, they considered that, and the air that we breathe, the first heaven. So it's not some ethereal location, it's literally... You're, 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 the birds fly in the heavens, as it would say. The second location is the stars and the planets. That's the next heaven, the second heaven. That's where the, the stars and the planets and, and, the, and the zodiac and all that stuff they would talk about in the Bible, they float in the heavens. They are present in the heavens. So that's the second heaven. The third heaven was the abode of God, the dwelling of angels, the dwelling of, of, of spirits, who, you know, people who have died and gone on, and finally, the dwelling of God himself. And so that would be considered the third heaven, the ultimate heaven, the abode of God. That is the spiritual realm. And so we need to realize when it says the new heavens, it's not just meaning God's abode only has changed, but literally the heavens themselves, the universe, the galaxies, do we really want to believe that in eternity, God's just removed the galaxies, this display of his glory? Well, I'm present, you can love me, but I remove my creative stuff that, that shows how creative and how powerful I am. No, I think it remains. And I think it's there on purpose. You ever sit back and wonder, why in the world, if God created the universe, is everything so stinking far away? I mean, according to scientists, it's millions and millions and millions of miles. And you're like, that's nice. Guess I'll never go see the Crab Nebula. Because I'm not going to live that long. But then you stop and think about when God created all of this. When he created the universe, he created humanity not to die. Do you ever think maybe his original intent was for us to explore these places? To go and, and, and discover the creative bounty that God has made in the universe? Because we wouldn't have died. Now in eternity, I don't think it'll change. We finally have come to a place where we will not die, we will not sin, and there are going to be places to explore because exploration is part of every little boy's heart. Amen, guys? Exploration is part of women's hearts too, I know, but it is especially shown in boys for some reason. We're the ones who see an open field and we tear through it trying to figure out how to build a fort. What's over there? I remember getting my bike and the first thing I wanted to do was ride anywhere and everywhere in town I could go. Why? Because I wanted to explore. 
I wanted to see what was there. I wanted to go down the alley. I wanted to crawl into that gutter and see what was in that, that drain. And, you know, that's just the heart inside of an explorer. And some of us lament that the whole earth has been explored. There's not a whole lot of places to go anymore that nobody knows about. And, you know, you think about caves and the sea and the space. And that's the heart of the Star Trek movement. That's the heart of the, it's the exploration. Booming inside of us, calling out. There is more to see. You know what? It's actually in all of us. We just renamed it. It's called vacation. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter if somebody else found it. We just want to go see it for ourselves. We go off to the Grand Canyon or you go off to one of our national parks. You go off to see the Grand Tetons. You go off to the Smoky Mountains. You go to Washington, D.C. Not because somebody found it. You can look through every book you want. Flipping through pages, it's not as satisfying as standing there going, wow. Now, some of us don't like to travel and some of us don't like this stuff. But you know what? Some of that hindrance and things will be gone for us. Because everywhere will be home. And when somebody comes back and says, you got to see this vista. You don't think hundreds of humanity are going to go, I want to see that. The exploration will be there even to the point where God, and I'm not going to die on this, but it literally looks like he has just reconstituted the heavens for exploration to send his glory. So we can go see how creative and how potentially, how just powerful this God is. And it goes on. And, there's, and some people lament this idea of the eternal state because of what it said in verse 1. There was no, and there, the sea was no more. And we're like, oh, no surfing? And all the surfers said, boo. Southern California, just like, it's a dry, waste, barren wasteland floating all the way out there. No exploration of the oceans, no oceanographers. What is this? No, that's not what it means by saying there is no sea. You see, if you read in the book of Revelation, the sea is where the beast comes out of, who, just, who brings all the problems to the earth. The sea is where uh, the Babylon ships her wares and sends sin all over the place. The sea is a, tum, a tumultuous, overturning evil. It actually is considered in the ancient mind the location of the demonic hordes. It was so dangerous to go into and so deep and terrifying, humanity didn't explore it. And if you've ever been on a cruise ship and sitting there staring down and haven't felt the pang of fear that you might fall in, you don't understand the depth of what the sea represents in the fear of the human heart. And what it's saying is that's gone. It's not that the oceans are gone. Look at Isaiah. It goes on in Isaiah chapter 60 to say, you shall see and be radiant. Speaking of Jerusalem, your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. And it's implying they come in the boats. They come across the oceans, bringing the wealth and the glory of the nations. And this is in the eternal state. So it's not that there's no oceans. It's that there's no danger to the oceans anymore. There's no sin remaining and residing as we would understand it with the oceans and what comes out of the sinful desires of the human heart. It's a world without sin. How much can I emphasize this? Because it has to capture imagination. It has to capture your idea of no human evil. Has to capture imagination of no demonic evil, of a world clean and beautiful and explorative. It's a new earth. It's a rejuvenated paradise. And so we move on. Let's just take that image in for a second. Now let's move on to the next image that shows up here in Revelation. We'll start in verse, chapter 29, verse 9. It starts to speak of another place. Then there came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls of the full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, this is a character that was shown up earlier in the book. He says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit 
to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal, had a high wall with 12 gates and 12... And the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, and the north, three gates, and the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We're like, what is this? And most of us, when we get to that point in Revelation, we're like, blah, 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 and then we move on. But what's fascinating about this is when interpreters dive into this text, Most of them, what they're seeing when they look at this new Jerusalem is this combination of God's people and God's presence. That in here is an idea that the the city of Jerusalem is the people of God and the presence of God at the same time as a city. They're all arguing over whether it's just a city or whether it's just the people, and it's pretty much meant to meld all of this together. And here's where I'm getting this from. Let's begin with this. Come, verse 9 says, Come, I will show you the bride of the wife of the Lamb. If you've read your Bible and you've been studying it, you know that the bride of the wife of the Lamb or the bride of Jesus Christ is the church. It is the people of God. They are the bride of Christ. And I know for guys, it's kind of like, I don't want to be nobody's bride. That's kind of like, well, I don't like that idea. The idea is not that you're going to get dressed up in white and walk down an aisle with flowers and, you know, all the us guys are going to be behind you going, I'm a Bridesmaid. It's like, that's not how it's going to work. It's implying the covenant relationship between you and God will never be broken. It's as locked as it's supposed to be with the marriage relationship. That there's not, divorce is not in God's mind. He links and stays. The covenant is sure, locked together. And we all know that's what the ideal is for a marriage. And what he's saying here is, I love you so much. We have linked together. My presence is with you. I am linked with you. We are intimately in relationship of covenant forever. And so we're the bride. It also indicates purity, beauty, wonder. And all this God is producing in the church, supposed to be producing purity, producing beauty, producing these things that speak of the church as the bride of of Christ. And so here it is. Somehow this city is the people. It's got it's got the apostles and it's got the and it's got the patriarchs and all this locked into the city as a testimony to what we are, a purified, brilliant, gleaming with the glory of God people. And at the same time, it goes on to say this. Look at verse 15. One who spoke with me at a measuring rod of gold, basically a tape measure, he gives, gives him a tape measure, go measure the city. And so he goes and measures, John goes and measures the city and finds out its length is, as, is the same as its width is the same as its height. It's a cube. And that's all it's saying in verses 15 down through 18. And it's important. Because a lot of people don't realize the cube was the shape of one other thing in all of the Bible. And that was the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is an interesting location. If you go back in the book of Exodus, you start reading around. You're, you're going to come to this place where Moses is on this mountain and God's showing him how to put together his tent of worship. And so he comes down the mountain. All the people give all their gold and all their supplies and they build this tent of worship. It has an outer court where people would bring their sacrifices and a fire would be burning. And it was like big time barbecue time. And they would, they would uh, take the sacrifices for sin and cook the meat and do all this stuff so that people were constantly purifying their sins. Then you, only the priests could come into the, the center tent, which was called the holy place. They would go in to purify and, and sprinkle blood and, and put bread out and light candles and do this and incense and stuff. It was all representing a very interesting thing because if you were to look at the, the tapestry, it represented a garden. 
And the food present represented the food that God would provide. And the light represented his presence of his glory. And all these things indicated the presence of God in a garden. The Garden of Eden. Yet two angels, woven into a tapestry, stood at one end, keeping you from entering the most holy place. Where the Ark of the Covenant is. That thing Indiana Jones found in the first movie. That, that, that's sitting in that, in that cube. And God's true presence and glory is shining there. And that was called the Holy of Holies. Only one person, one time a year was ever allowed in there. It was the high priest to bring one atonement. And if he insulted God, he'd die. Because sin couldn't be in the presence of God. And what God is saying here is now that, that thing is the whole of human existence. The whole city is his holy of holies. Because Jesus, when he died, rent that veil with those angels on it, opening the access for humanity so we could dwell with God. Now all of eternity is a holy of holies in the city of Jerusalem. And what we do then is we dwell as a people of God, making up the holiness of God and God's presence with us. It is a linking of all these symbols together. And so it is overwhelming to the reality of the presence of God in our lives, living in God in a city that's a garden. All of these things come smashing into one picture of eternity. And so let's untangle it a little bit more. Because as we begin to see what this new Jerusalem is, we begin to see the relationships of each other. And let's start with those relationships because that's pretty important. This may be the place you want to plug your kids' ears, but that's okay. We'll try to do as good as we can. The relationships in eternity are familial relationships. They're going to be ones of family relationships, but not the kind that we know now. Most of us center our family relationships around a husband and a wife and the children and parents. That's how we do it. In the ancient culture, you centered your life around your siblings. You left your wife, you left your husband to go hang out with your siblings, and that was the point. It was the most intimate relationship known in the ancient world was that of the brother and the sister or the brother and the brother, and it was asexual. And it was intended that way. God thought, God was saying the blood is huge. Marriage covenant is huge. But in the ancient world, you called yourself a brother or a sister when you felt extremely close to somebody. Because that's how the ancient church understood each other. We became brothers and sisters in, the, in God's family where he is the father. You say, well, what does that do for marriage? This was a big deal in the 1800s. Everybody was griping over what happens with mar- when you're married after, you, after the resurrection. And, and so one group that came out and said, you, you get married forever and it never stops. And that, was, that became the Mormon sect. And, and the church has always said the same thing because what Jesus said. And it's found here in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 34. Jesus says this. As Jesus said to them, he's being questioned about the resurrection and marriage. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage because they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And Jesus' point is simply this. There is no need for marriage anymore in eternity because you don't need to procreate. And a lot of our Americans right now are going, what, no sex in heaven? What, what, what? It's like stealing the most precious gem of the human thought. But what's interesting about it is God's always intended sex to belong within the marital relationship. And it's supposed to be there that it brings about a procreation of a family, a future generation, and a cared-for environment representing the covenant of God. All these things are represented in the symbol of marriage that is unnecessary because it's finalized in God's presence and his covenant fully. 
in the ecstasy of heaven being fully known and not have to be gained by somebody else. And so marriage without procreation, no need for children and all that stuff, becomes an obsolete thing. So does sex. And it reveals something to us, how obsessed as a culture we are. Of a blessing God intends for, a, for, a, for one setting. We think it is heaven. And we continue to worship it like the ancients did. And we continue to run after it and do these things. And God says, very interestingly enough, unlike all the other religious expressions, even you can think of Islam and these things now, it's just not there. And it's not supposed to be disappointing. Because let's be honest, there comes a certain age where suddenly that concept that is residing in a marriage relationship becomes a possessor of minds and culture. It starts to corrupt our art. It starts to corrupt our music. I'm not saying it's evil. I'm saying what we do with it is we put it on a pedestal and God never intended for it. And what happens is people start running around and men start objectifying women and turning them into objects and not the image of God. And women start turning themselves into objects, trying to be those objects of lust and pointed. And they kill themselves in doing things. And sex gets perverted and switched so that men want men and women want women. And all this stuff happens. And guess what? In eternity, all that is gone. And the human mind is free from an obsession of something that's supposed to point us to eternity. Now, I don't believe it leaves a void. I believe God has got a greater point in it. A greater point of the intimacy that occurs in the relationship with God and the greater, and that's, and the greater ecstasy of knowing and being fully available and being fully able to be known is existing, but it's not sexual. So check this out. Me and my wife, my, me, she, my wife always talks to me about it. She's like, oh, I don't get it. I'm, you're, the, you're my best friend. You're the one I love to hang out with the most. I'm like, I'm in the same boat. So in heaven, we're just not going to care. I'm, you're my brother. You're my, I'm your sister. It's like, no, no, no. I still think we're going to be like the two people that hang out with each other the most. I don't think I'm going to be like, oh, I'm going to go over here. Have a great time. You know, it's like, I don't think that's how it's going to work. I'm sure we are going to want to hang out with each other and do the explorations things. But if she wants to go do something else, I'm not going to have this feeling like you're mine. Where are you going? That's going to be gone. I don't have to possess her. I don't have to own her. I don't have to think that she's mine. When she makes friends with other men, she's making friends with brothers. And I'm going to go, you're better because of it. Because there's no sexual thinking. Think how much your mind right now is pinging off of the romantic and all this stuff. Right now, your jealousy meter is going, nah, 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 because that'll all be freaking gone. You don't get jealous when your sister goes and dates somebody else, guys. You should go right now, ew, right, exactly. When our emotions are set to brotherhood and sisterhood, it changes the ability for us to be intimate and in a sense of the real true meaning of me being able to talk about who I am, you being able to talk about who you are, and no judgment happens. It's the best form of relationship in eternity we will have. And right now your marriage hints to it. And we can mourn that. Maybe you need to, you need to work with God about that. You can debate me and say that's not true, but that's what it's pointing at. I need to get there because I need to knock that out so that we can be able to focus in on what heaven's really going to be about. With that gone, the mind clear and so many things open and focused, it's going to shift because the new Jerusalem is the garden of God and the city of man combined. Notice what we had said. Actually, look down here to verse 22. In, in Revelation, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. That doesn't mean the sun or moon isn't there. The city doesn't need its light 
So whatever you see, you'll see by the glory of God. I see color because God's shining. I see you because God's shining. That's the idea. By its light, the nations will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Go on down to chapter 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kind of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. Stop right there. This is a rejuvenated earth. This is a rejuvenated earth. What we have is a new Jerusalem, which is the garden of God and the city of man combined. And it begins with this idea that the garden of God is God's full provision without the fall. There's no longer anything accursed. You ever wonder why apples from up in, you know, like up in Oakland, it's just not apple trees everywhere now. Apples have been up there long enough and they fall off the trees and get kicked around and kids eat them and the birds eat them. But apple trees just going like, boom, random apple tree forest. Why don't we get a random orange tree forest? We don't get random fruit forests because there's a curse on the ground. Adam sinned and God said, no, you've got to toil. If you're going to eat of the ground, it's going to produce easily for you things that you don't need. Weeds. Thorns. We're like, thanks God. We don't have to try to make those. And yet there they are. Popping up out of the ground, God says, that's all gone. There's nothing accursed anymore. There's so much provision of food, you don't have to farm. Farming's done. And all the farmers are like, oh, I like farming. Well, that's okay. You can farm if you want to, but the point is that you don't, we don't need it. What remains is gardening. Shaping it. Beautifying it. God's full provision exists so that you're not going to this place going, I need food, I need, no. You're not even toiling anymore. You'll work, but it's of a different kind. God's full provision exists so that your mind is not bent on the gaining of things. You're satisfied, you're supplied, you're in the garden. And yet there's a city. And this city has something interesting about it. This city has culture. You see, the city of man is the center of human ingenuity and culture. And that's what's huge. It's the center of human culture. Notice, notice what he says up here in verse, uh, we just read it in chapter 21. By its lice, or, light, verse 24, not lice. Lice won't be there. No, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut and there will be no night there. You're like, how can there be no night there? Listen, what happens at night? In the, cold, in the Bible, when you talk about night, it is talking about the time period in which people do the greatest evils. They kill at night. They, take, they thieve at night. They use uh, all those people out there that are selling themselves at night. The, the, all of these pieces exist at night. It's the part of the culture that's done. That's why you have certain things get played at night on your TV. Night is the time where everybody's secrets can come out. And he says, there's no more nights, but there's culture. That world out there that many of us are afraid of and we don't want to get engaged with because it's going to corrupt us and all, guess what? It's in here already. Human beings, when we make culture, we destroy it because we're sinful. Period. What is culture, Greg? Culture is anything a human being makes out of the world. God intended us to do this. Before the fall, he intended us to do this. Notice this verse in, in, in Genesis chapter one. And God blessed them and said, 
And God said to them, speaking to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That's not like pound the earth and make it. No, it means to go and rule it and shape it like God did to cultivate it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the earth, every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, go out there and make pets. Care for them. Make their lives better. Do you know pets live longer than the wild animals? Because we cultivate their lives. We make them better. We give them little shirts and sweaters and stuff, you know. <laughs> the point is simply that God has called us to do something. He's called us to make culture. He's called us to continue to create where he has created everything. He says, now as my image, make it more. Look around this room. You are surrounded by culture. The worship music, the guitars, the lights, the projectors, the varied backgrounds, the very clothes you're wearing, the food that you ate this morning, the way that you do your hair, it's all culture. And a lot of it's not sinful. But guarantee you, this is a sinful church. And this church needs transformation because whatever we make we t- and whatever we touch, we corrupt with sin. So this isn't like the, the holy place when sin never comes in. No, 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 no. If you're sitting here, you brought sin in. If I'm standing here, I brought sin in. So let's get over it and realize even the church gets it wrong and corrupts it. But in eternity, all that's gone. There's one thing that's not there, Sin. Sin is not there. And so, will there be Chinese food? The glory of the nations will be brought in. I think that's a glory to China. I don't know what kind of meat they're going to use in eternity. That's a different question. But the point is simply that, will there be Mexican food? Will we sit down and have chips and salsa? Will you speak? Will there be people speaking Spanish? Yes. Will there be great Bavarian cathedrals and all kinds of crazy things to look at? Will there be the cultural traditions of the people, like the Native Americans? Will the Muslim art be hanging in heaven? Careful, Greg. Do I believe that the Muslims can write in their beautiful script on the walls the scripture verses from the Bible and it be honoring to God? Absolutely. Do I believe that the wonders of the, of the Egyptians can be redeemed for the glory of God? Absolutely. Do I think every name, tribe, tongue, and nation will resound and live in eternity? Yes, and they will bring their cultural goods to Jerusalem so God is worshiped in every tongue, tribe, nation. Our clothing will be redeemed. You're not gonna be wearing togas. Somebody will. Because there are Romans there and tunics there. And do we think they're going to like our clothes? Probably not. Will we have cultural distinctives? Will there be music? Yes, yes, yes. All without sin. Everything is worship as long as it's without sin. So everything in eternity that's creation of culture is good and glorious and beautiful and honoring to God as he's called us to make it. In his image, we get to make things. 
The beauty of heaven is not that we're sitting around trying to find where our food is. The beauty of heaven is I'm rock climbing, overwhelmed with the wonder of the grandeur of the glory of God. And we're getting to talk about great things and invent great things because God is glorified when we discover another creature and look at its biology and look at its ecosystem. And we're wondering at God's wonder in the universe as we stare at the stars and we do the scientific endeavors to know about them. As God continues, one day we sit down and we go, we saw everything, God. We've been here for a billion Billy, we lost count. And he goes, I just made more. As we gather and worship and singing songs that have never been heard on instruments that haven't been invented, because guys, we get to do these things for the glory of God. I believe, and I'm going to say this I think the beginning of heaven is going to be a mad rush to bookstores and internet pulling up sites on humanpedia, the Wikipedia of heaven. Because it's going to begin with God standing there around a fire and all of us human beings sitting around watching him tell in a tribal tongue and language that we got to learn before we got there the story of certain people in that tribe who came to Christ resounding in their language, in their heart song, in their way they do things. And we're just wondering at the cultural beauty, the wonder of God telling the story. There are going to be documentaries and films and books and magazines and journal entries and everything talking about the wonder of how God saved these people and what he did in the world. We're going to get history in a different way. And then when all that's done, we're going to turn around and go, what's next? And he's going to go, go explore or something. I'm not saying that's, you don't hold me on this, but my imagination runs when I come to the realization that God has not limited the human being to just be a song machine or just a, uh, no, but to express his full image forever without one thing present, sin. Which is why we won't need an insurance salesman in heaven, so you're out of a job. Don't need funeral people in heaven. You're out of a job. Firemen, you're free. Police officers, don't need you. Hospitals, closed. Orphanages, nope. Pastors, why? (laughs) But the beauty of eternity is the worship of God in manifold cultural forms. But there's one other thing that's missing in heaven other than sin. Evangelism. The one thing that takes the sin away. See, the one thing that holds us back from heaven is sin. The one thing that we're called to do right now that we can't do there is tell people how to get rid of that sin. And guys, I think it's wrong for us as churches to be scared to talk to a culture about a thing called hell and a thing called heaven when it's the final destinations of our travel plans. Look, I don't want anybody in this room to go to hell. I want you to enjoy the beauty and the grandeur of what God has for eternity in heaven. But if you have sin in your background, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, lying, pride, arrogance, a surety that you can get yourself there, you're doomed. You're doomed. You cannot do enough good You cannot overcome the sin. You cannot rebound against it. There's nothing we can do to release ourselves. You need a sacrifice. That's why God gave Jesus Christ. 
Because there's nobody in this room who shouldn't be able to get in heaven. You've not done enough sin and you've not done enough good to get there. Sin sin will keep you out. There's not enough good to cover it. So you need a way in. And that's through Jesus Christ. He bears your sin. He takes it from you. He gives you access to God and a relationship with him. It's the only route in. Because it's the only way to deal with sin. And I encourage you, encourage you to hear. Church, ask yourself this question. What is it that you are doing now that will resonate for eternity? And I want, to th- want you to think about it in this way. Who is it in your mind that you know needs this message? That you would take it to them. Think about them right now as we bow our heads. Otherwise, if you are here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, but you're hearing what I'm saying and you're, you're saying, man, that's what heaven is and it's without sin and it's only the presence of God. You got to admit yourself, you, you've sinned. You got to say that. You got to know that. You know we produce evil and you may have even tried to stop yourself from doing certain things and found that even in your stopping, you're doing things wrong. God knows that already. He doesn't want anybody to be kept out. So he gives this message that Jesus Christ has born sin for those who would, who would receive it as a gift. He'll deal with your sin. He'll take the punishment. He'll take the hell for you so you have access to heaven. And it's an absolute gift. All you have to do is receive it. And if you haven't received that yet, and you want to receive the gift of Jesus Christ to bear your sins, to give you a relationship with God and give you access to heaven, you want to receive that, I give you a chance right now just to do that, just to express it by putting up your hand. By raising your hand, you're saying, yeah, that's me. I want to receive that right now. Amen. Maybe you're not a hand raiser, that's all right. Just join with me in this prayer. It's just a way of expressing your heart to God. Just say, God in heaven, I know that I've sinned. And I know that's the one thing that's not gonna be allowed in heaven. I ask that you'd forgive me of my sin. I trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. And I trust that he has taken my sin away. I'm ready to follow you all the way into heaven and beyond. It's in Jesus' name I pray.